People want to reduce inconsistency and dissonance in their own belief system, but they also want to reduce dissonance at the social level. And of course, people can differ then in how important they judge these different levels. So for some people, it might be more important, okay, that their own belief system is very consistent. Other people will be a bit more inclined to agree with their social network and so on. And what, what I think is also very interesting about this is that there's quite a lot of indications that what happens in a single human's mind is actually quite similar to what happens in a group of humans. So for example, if a group has kind of an inclined leaning toward a given issue, let's say it's about abortion and most of the individual in the group are pro-choice and then they discuss about this and then after discussing this people will actually move to being even more pro-choice at the same time when you ask people to think about the attitudes the kind of kind of the same happens so if i ask someone who is let's say moderately pro-choice think a bit about your attitude then after a few minutes this person will actually move a bit more towards the extreme <laughs> Human relationships are often described in the language of chemistry. Does that make the beliefs and attitudes of individuals a kind of physics? It is at least a fascinating avenue of inquiry. In particular, the field of statistical mechanics offers potent tools for understanding how exactly people form their views and change their minds. From this perspective, everyone is a dynamic network of opinions and values in a tense and ever-changing balance both with others and ourselves. The chemistry of social life, then, arises from multi-level interactions in our noisy minds and how they influence each other. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. In this conversation, we speak with SFI postdoc Jonas Delega about how his research uses physics models to understand the emergence of higher-level behaviors from lower-level behaviors, both within and between people. We discuss the role of entropy in the formation of individual beliefs, statistical approaches to the study of ambivalence and cognitive dissonance, the wisdom and challenge of tolerating ambiguity, and the social consequences when we try to minimize internal conflict. If you value our research and communication efforts, please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash podcast give. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. Jonas Delega, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I like to start these conversations by humanizing the scientist a little bit here, mm -hmm. talking about how you got into your work and what animated or inspired the kinds of questions that you're interested in asking in your research. So give us a little bit of a, a backstory on your entry into science. Yeah, sure. I kind of 
was always very interested in people's beliefs. I know sometimes people are quite a mystery to me and some of the beliefs people have. And it might also sound a bit like a cliche, but also being a German, it kind of inspired me our, our history and how people can have these extremely horrible beliefs and then act on them. So that is one of the great mysteries in our, in our world. I don't come from an academic background, not from an academic family, so I didn't really know what science was like. But at some point, I kind of decided, okay, I'm really interested in this. I should just study psychology. And that then was what I did. And then I got deeper into these questions. How do people's beliefs form? How also form extreme beliefs? And then during my PhD, I also discovered complexity science aspects to the study of beliefs. And that really then led me to the research that I'm currently doing and that I also did during my PhD, which is based mostly on the idea that we can understand how beliefs form and change through studying them as networks. I feel like there are a lot of core ideas that we need to define in order to really get into the meat of your work. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and one of those would just be the way that you understand attitudes in the first mm -hmm. place and beliefs and how you're defining those things formally in a way that's somewhat different from the sort of common use of those terms. Not entirely, but you're making some nuanced distinctions here that I think are key to understanding how you actually go about creating models for this stuff. The definition of attitudes or the general definition that I use in my, in my work that is mostly comes from very classic ideas and mostly social psychology. An attitude is generally just the liking or disliking of an attitude object, which can basically be anything. It can be a person, uh, an idea, a product, and so on. This is more like this the, the global evaluation, but you also have these more nuanced elements of attitudes, which generally come in the form of beliefs. So for example, if you think of a person that you really like, you might think about this person, this person is a very, very intelligent person, uh, fun to talk to and uh, honest and so on. But of course, there's also more feelings involved in this attitude. So you really like this person, you have sympathy toward this person. And then there's also, of course, behaviors involved. So for example, you enjoy spending time with this person. And this is one of the classic ideas in social psychology that attitudes consist of these three different components of attitudes. And then what my research I'm most focused on is on the interactions between these different elements, because, you know, it's, it's not the thing that you, you basically just have all these different beliefs, feelings and behaviors in, in isolation, but they all influence each other. Having one positive belief about a person will make it more likely to have other positive beliefs. We're definitely going to get to that, the network yeah. nature of this stuff. But before we do, I think one of the key points to stress in this discussion is the fact that you're bringing in terms and models from statistical mechanics and using those to analyze this. So I think it's worth yeah. assuming zero knowledge on the part of our listeners, which is probably yeah. deeply unfair. But nonetheless, building our ladder at the ground, let's talk about what it is that you mean when you say attitudinal entropy and mm -hmm. the different kinds of entropy that figure into this in terms of the way that you just described it about these micro beliefs leading to a person's attitude about something. That's really key. Exactly. So as you said, the important point here is that there's basically two levels. And I mean, of course, it's a, it's a bit of a simplification because also beliefs can also be a bit more, more nuanced, more global. But for the sake of simplicity, we treat it now mostly as having two levels. So having these more fine-grained beliefs and then this general attitude. 
And I think the framework of statistical mechanics then lends very well to this because this is really what I think statistical mechanics is in essence about, about connecting these lower level properties to higher level emerging properties. And then, of course, also entropy comes into play. And that is often also one critique I get on my work because people think, okay, entropy, that comes from, from physics, from natural science. What does it have to do with psychology? But the, the interesting thing about entropy is that it's a statistical concept. So in this sense, in my view, this applies also very well to attitudes because it's just much easier actually to have a very inconsistent and unclear attitude because, I mean, when you think again about a person and there's many different ways you can be ambivalent about a person, but just basically one way to feel very positive about this person so that you have all these positive beliefs and positive feelings and so on. This then directly relates to Boltzmann entropy, which is basically that how many of these micro properties can lead to this global emerging pattern. A couple of examples that you give in this paper, this is the one that you co-authored with Borsum, Van Harveld, and Vandermas in Psychological Inquiry, the, the Attitudinal Entropy Framework as a General Theory of Individual Attitudes. You give a couple of examples. One I really like is the slot machine. There's a lot of ways to lose, but there's only a few ways you can get three or four or five in a row. And then an another one is a little bit more on the, the psychological end is about snakes, which I think, mm -hmm. given the amount of work on the formation of political opinions that you and colleagues have done at SFI, might be a little on the nose. But there are many, many different reasons to like or not like someone. And yet you end up voting for a given candidate, along with a lot of people with whom you disagree on most points. But this is all kind of assuming that all of these different beliefs are uncorrelated. And as you already said, it's not that case. You're not yeah. equally likely to have two different beliefs about a person. This is where the yeah, network exactly. model comes in and the way that all of these different beliefs influence one another enters the picture. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you're applying network models to these sort of ecologies of belief? It's really based on this basic idea that you don't form these beliefs in isolation. When you, for example, you observe a person to act in an honest manner, it's not just the case that you're just going to know this and going to save it up in your mind and say, oh yeah, this person is honest. And of course, it primes you to also think about this person in other ways. So for example, you will assume this person, oh, this person is probably also caring. It's a nice person and so on. You might also infer that this person is intelligent. And then this implies that all these different beliefs influence each other, but also beliefs influence each other in different amounts. For example, judging someone as honest will have a high impact on judging this person as caring, but a lesser impact on judging this person as intelligent. So I think and this is really why I think that applying network analysis to attitudes makes a lot of sense because these beliefs form a network and the connections between these uh, beliefs are also not trivial. So I think we can actually learn quite a bit from studying attitudes as networks and can, for example, see which belief is most central to a person's belief system, which can also give us information, okay, how might these beliefs be changed? In this paper, you and your co-authors use the Ising model, which I think most fans of complex systems research know from inquiry into the alignment of magnetic particles. But here you're doing something a little different with it. And I'd like to link that to a statement that we kind of glossed on the way here, which is what it is that a person's brain is doing with inconsistent beliefs and how the macro state of a person's attitude is more or less unstable due to inconsistencies in the micro states of their beliefs. 
there's a trend or a bias in us towards seeking consistency in the same way that, you know, you put two magnetic north ends together and, you know, the magnets flip, they reorient according to the influence. That's a real simple, naive explanation of this. And I'd love to hear you go into a little more depth about the way that the icing model is being used in this and the way that you might consider a person's cognition as seeking a lower entropy macro state, if you will. Yeah, yeah. An important point also to add to this is that it will also depend on the circumstances, how much you are motivated to seek this consistency. So, for example, if the attitude or the belief system is very important to you, for example, you, you have to make a decision based on this, you have to decide between houses you want to buy, then you are very motivated to arrive at a decision and arriving at this decision will be much easier if you have at least somewhat consistent attitude. And on the other hand, if you don't really care about a given topic, maybe you're, for example, you are not interested in politics at all, then you will probably be fine with having inconsistent attitudes toward given politicians. We use this, the Ising model, to also model these differences. In the Ising model in general, in statistical physics, you have this idea of temperature, which actually will influence how strong this drive towards consistency is. So basically, if you really care about something, this can then be modeled using the Ising model with having a low temperature attitude, which will then go also to a more extreme attitude. But if you don't really care, you can model this with a high temperature attitude, which then is a bit more all over the place and will also likely not have that much impact, for example, on your behavior. Also relating to this, there's pretty cool research actually by Dan Simon of the University of Southern California, where he gives people a few uh, facts about a legal case. And then the first million people don't know that these facts are related and they just rate them. And then at some point they learn, okay, this is about a legal case and you have to decide whether the person is guilty or not. And then all these different facts, so for example, that this person was seen at the scene of the crime and that maybe uh, it was about robbery or something and that this person has financial problems. These different statements then become correlated in, in people's minds if they belong to the same case, which really underlines the point. If you want to come to a decision, all the different aspects of the decision become dependent on each other. This is a maybe a bit of a Baroque constellation here I'm going to try to put together, but it's listening to you speak about all this stuff, just to take a dip out for a moment of this paper and propose some links to other work. I'm reminded of uh, Emory University human development professor James Fowler, who wrote a book in 1981 called Stages of Faith, where he was looking at child and adult psychological development and how as a person learns to take the structures of their mind as objects as they grow older and wiser. He basically looked at this massive survey of interviews and survey information. And he basically described wisdom as the tolerance for ambiguity. And, uh -huh. it, you know, if you think about development in terms of moving the subject of one's identity into the position of an object, you learn to take your beliefs as objects and manipulate them through metacognition. These become less imminent and less important to you. You gain distance from them. And so you're allowed to remain in a position of unknowing about them. And so to link that back into SFI research, I'm reminded of the conversation I had with Tim Kohler and Martin Sheffer about climate change as a collective mm -hmm. action problem and how this is something that is so abstract to many, many people. 
has been abstracted, even in cases where the extreme weather events are urgent, palpable, and immediate. It's really unclear how we would all align in a position that results in concerted action towards one strategy or one outcome over another. It's interesting because what determines the stakes uh, and what determines therefore the urgency that a person feels to settle into one state or another in this model seems sometimes to have to do with wisdom and maturity and sometimes to do with ignorance and or misaligned incentives. So I don't know what your thoughts are on all of that, but it just seemed worth mentioning that these are two cases where it seems like your model is very easily applied, but they kind of point in different directions. This quote, what was it? Uh, Wisdom is the tolerance of ambiguity. I think that's a very good quote. And I think that's also often a problem. I think there's this general tendency. Uh, I think it's it's very human thing to do. It might almost be automatic to reduce ambiguity and uh, arrive at a more simple representation than what the world actually is. It's also that we have a lot of pressure, I think, in, in our society that you should have very clear opinions. It's often kind of considered a bad sign if you say, oh, I, I don't know. I mean, for many, many topics, your answer actually should be, yeah, I don't really know. I mean, that's also what drives science, acknowledging that for the most part, we just don't know. And I think people in general don't really like acknowledging this. But yeah, I think it often really helps. Then also going to issues like climate change, it's portrayed, and of course, uh, rightfully so, as a very important issue. Uh, but this, this will also then motivate people to reduce the ambiguity in their belief system even more. And this will also then induce a resistance, actually, so that some people will then just uh, reduce this ambiguity by uh, thinking, okay, uh, climate change is just not real. And so I think it can often cause problems if we make an issue too important, which, of course, is a bit of a conundrum there, because, I mean, it's, it is very important, but there's a fine line that you have to walk there. Yeah, certainly, as with so many things in <laughs> the complex systems world, it seems like what we're really seeking is a kind of Aristotelian golden mean between two virtues (laughs) that are horribly destructive if taken to the extreme. And in that sense, another piece I'd love to link to your work is the piece that uh, SFI researchers Vicky Yang, uh, Tamara Vanderdos, and Henrik Olsen just published in PLOS 1 today, Falling Hmm. Through the Cracks. I I didn't know that. Yeah, modeling the formation of social category boundaries. So like what you and your co-authors are saying in, in this piece is that it's psychologically uncomfortable to remain in this sort of gaseous state about your convictions. <laughs> and that this is not just true at the individual level, but this is true when it comes to the formation of identity. And therefore, it's a dynamic that makes for these overly simple voting blocks and political categories and categories of identity where moderates and independents and non-binary gendered individuals and so on just sort of disappear. I'm curious, based on this model of yours, what hope you think we have for creating a space where more nuance and more categories is not such a gruesome thing to entertain, is not such a difficult thing to actually hold. This is where we can get into some of the other implications and predictions of your model about what happens when we try to manipulate the weights in a a network model of attitudes. First of all, I, I think it's important to actually 
acknowledge that that it's quite a, a natural drive for humans to make complex issues more simple. But also by acknowledging this, I think this also then leads us to realize that we shouldn't make this even more pronounced, right? So, and for example, having a two-party system where people actually even have to register with a party, you will just fuel this natural tendency. You already have to reduce your inconsistency to be able to vote. No political party or no political candidate will exactly be what you want. So there must also be already some reduction of this inconsistency there. But then having people be reminded all the time, okay, you either are a Democrat or a Republican, really must make this much more pronounced, right? So that basically the whole time you will be even more or less tolerant of this complexity. So I think it would be important to acknowledge this and then derive strategies how we can actually deal with this. And I think it's, it's of course, not that easy to just move from a two-party system to a multi-party system, but trying to reduce this identification would, I think, help already at least a bit. One of the insights that spills out of this model has to do with why it is, and, and you kind of hinted at this just a moment ago, why it is that it is so incredibly difficult to persuade people with evidence and why attempts to persuade people so often backfire. And so, you know, I'd love to ground this in something that hopefully helps people navigate their personal relationships, their organizational bureaucracies, the work that they do as lobbyists and activists. Why is this happening that our persuasion so often backfires? And then what can we do about that? One pretty direct implication of our model is that what basically happens if you have a discussion with a person you don't agree with, there's probably two things going on. Let's assume this person will listen to you, so it's not uh, you, you don't hate each other, but you, you might be colleagues or friends, but you just have different opinions. Talking about this will have basically two consequences. So first of all, you will communicate some information you have to this other person. And this other person will also, uh, at least to some extent, will receive this information. But what will also happen is that because of this conversation, the other person will, of course, direct attention to the issue. And this, in, in our model, directly leads you to your beliefs becoming more correlated and going to more extremes. So what then can happen is even if this person hears the information from your side, it might actually be that the increase in attention and in importance will actually move this person further away from you because this person's pre-existing beliefs become more correlated and therefore this person becomes more extreme in the other direction. And so this already is kind of the default thing what will happen. But again, there, acknowledging this, that this will happen already implies you don't want to exaggerate this. And I think, for example, if you would tell a person that basically, well, you're wrong, <laughs> This will basically just lead this person to become even more entrenched in his or her former beliefs. And so basically having an open mind and, and signaling, yeah, I have an open mind also for what, what you think will probably reduce this tendency at least somewhat. And then maybe you can actually really have a good discussion and actually exchange information instead of just entrenching your beliefs even more. Again, to link this to some other SFI research, I'm reminded of Simon DeDeo's presentation on explosive proofs of mathematical truths. Rather than looking at a mathematical proof as a linear if-then series of arguments, that if you map it as a network, that you can actually kick a lot of the legs out from under that table without the table falling over. 
one of the predictions that you just spoke to in this model is that if you can reduce the dependence parameter of a network, that's actually what allows for a less stable, a less resistant attitude. And so, you know, I'm thinking about this in terms of, you know, a tried and true approach to formal debate, which is, again, not to attack the resolution itself, not to attack the macro state and not to attack the components of it that are the most stable, but to look for little ways to erode and undercut this piece by piece and thereby differentiating for your debate opponent in the way that, you know, Simon talks about this, that these are not all sort of uh, logically consequential from one another. And you make this distinction in, in, in this this paper also that there is a difference between a discrete shift in a person's attitude and a continuous shift. You don't necessarily have to change a person's mind entirely. You can just move them a little closer to the center of the argument. Does this analogy hold? Yeah, I think so. But of course, also it relates again to what extent this attitude is then very important to this person because having these discrete shifts happening, that is something that's much more likely to happen if it's very important. Um, And these more continuous shifts, it's more likely if the person is not too involved in this issue. So basically having debate strategy where you at the same time don't make this argument too involved, but also getting your argument across will probably be the most effective. But of course, it's also it's also very difficult to actually do that. Even though I feel like you've touched on this already, I'd like to specifically highlight ambivalence and cognitive dissonance. And in particular, mm-hmm. you differentiate between attitudinal ambivalence and felt ambivalence. And also, I, I know so, so many people in the modern world that are suffering from really profound cognitive dissonance at this time. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, just, I think, you know, just again, grounding your model and its predictions and implications in something that helps people get a better sense for why it is that this is such an epidemic experience in this time. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Is it simply the fact that we are exposed to so many different perspectives in a global social networks? Or what is going on and what, if any, balm can we apply to these wounds that isn't just about entrenching ourselves in some sort of retrogressive future shock kind of move into these counterfactual positions just to feel a little bit more united within ourselves? I I would think that it might be actually two reasons. Of course, we have much more information about all different things than we used to have. But at the same time, for, especially in the political arena, it's also, there's this much, much more pressure actually to be involved in this. With the last president of the US constantly being on Twitter, I mean, it's people getting reminded all the time, okay, there's on the one side people who really, really like this president, but they also remind of this constantly. And then there were other people who really disliked this president, and they were also constantly reminded of this. And so at the same time, you have this extreme flow of information. And on the other hand, you also are kind of all the time pressured to make up your mind. And I think this is kind of a toxic combination, because then you just kind of have to really simplify all the information you get and instead of just accepting okay there's just a lot of different things going on and for some things i just don't know 
actually after the election in 2016, Stephen Colbert actually put this very well, how we should deal with it. And he said something like, informed, yes, but not in it all the time. And I think this is something that we should actually in general approach these issues because in the last years, I think everyone was basically in it all the time and it's just too much. And I think this will actually reduce the likelihood that people will also accept. We differ in our opinions and that is fine. But I also want to stress that I think polarization, for example, is not always a bad thing. So, for example, the turnout in the last election was the highest turnout in, I think, 60 years or so. And I think their polarization actually had a very positive impact. But then, of course, we don't want people hating other people that disagree with them. Disagreeing is great and fine, but hate, of course, is not the way to go. You just reminded me of a couple different things, one of which is a paper I love bringing up whenever people are talking about you know, world peace, which is a paper David Krakauer and Jessica Flack co-authored with Eleanor Brush in Science Advances, Conflicts of Interest Improve Collective Computation of Adaptive Social Structures. And so, yeah, this is one of those sort of awkward realities, if you will, that comes out of complex systems research, which is if everyone's looking in the same direction, then that's actually an extremely fragile, brittle attention ecology. You're going to get hit in the back of the head with the dodgeball, all of you. Whereas finding ways to accommodate a certain amount of polarization actually results in a smarter society over the long term. And you know, I was just talking about this on the show with James Evans a couple episodes ago, where he was talking about the overwhelming evidence that if you look at you know the science of science, and again, this is just maybe an advertisement for the kind of non-disciplinarity going on at SFI, but the incentives of science, they tend to lead to these silos, which are extremely focused and therefore missing important things in that massive scientific advancements. These like discrete shifts, you know, these scientific revolutions tend to come from naive outsiders that are willing to call to attention something on the periphery of a given field. We spoke about this on the show with Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West about the importance of calling bullshit, the importance mm -hmm. of finding ways to accommodate in our societies and in our organizations the child that can call out the emperor for wearing no clothing. There's not really a question attached to that, but it just seems <laughs> it just seems like there is this sense in which as awkward as it is, it is good for us to accept some friction for all of these reasons which include reasons like leaving a little slack in a workday, evidence that taking some time off from a particular question leads to a creative solution. That's a great idea also when we apply this model to creativity. The more you think about an issue, the more you will follow a given path. In some cases, this will be fine if you're on the right path, but sometimes you just have to take a step back and then just uh, taking a walk outside might actually lead you into having a fresh mind and then taking this problem from a different side. And also on a more societal or a more on a group level, I mean, what you just, just said, I, I mean, it reminds also a bit about Kuhn's writing about revolutions in science. If science, a discipline in science is on a right path, then this given paradigm works quite well, right? So then you can make a lot of discoveries. That, but at some point, of course, you hit an end and then you need this outside influence and really something or someone to actually shake this up a bit so that you, that also the, the discipline as a, as a whole can actually tackle this other problems from a different angle. I think this is definitely one of the things that makes science so successful, actually. 
that it's not only people who are very at the core of a given field, not only they can influence this field, but also someone coming from a different field or, or young persons just coming in with new ideas, that there's a given sense of anarchy in science. I think it's really makes it much stronger than if we would just have this more hierarchical structure. To link that into some of the insights from evolutionary biology that we discussed with David Krakauer in episode 29 on mass extinctions. This was part of the transmission series when we were talking about system level shocks and the strategies, you know, higher, low mutation rates. The viruses are basically practicing what, what David called a, a high beta investment strategy because they're changing the context all the time. They're constantly being sneezed into a different organism. They have a much more mutable identity. It calls to mind this question about the proliferation of cognitive dissonance in the 21st century. Would you agree that the rate of change and the sort of flexibility of a person's attitude, do you see it sort of obeying the same dynamics that, you know, a larger society plays by these rules of like the genetics of a large continental population versus a small island population, and that it's easier to change your mind in a smaller community because you're trying to peg your beliefs and behaviors to a smaller number of, of people. Whereas on the mainland, you can get stuck in a sort of suboptimal position because you're trying to satisfy too many different constraints at the same time. I think that's also a nice extension, actually, of what we mostly talked about until now, basically of how your own beliefs are related to each other. But of course, your own beliefs don't only depend on your other beliefs you have, but also on the beliefs of the people around you. It's an interesting idea to, if, if you have this larger society, I mean, my guess would actually be that in a larger society, the, the beliefs you have follow much more constraints than if you live in a very small community. But I mean, it can also be, of course, they have this very small community where everyone is very highly dependent on everyone else that, of course, could also lead you to being very constrained in how you can change your beliefs. But in general, I, I would think, of course, the, the, the people around you put a high constraints on what, what you actually can believe and also what is actually okay for you to believe or what you think is okay for you to believe. Of course, there's a lot of disagreements in, in our society, but of course, these follow a specific game rules. There's, of course, a lot of things we basically don't even consider. For example, even for something like democracy to work, it has to be that basically our beliefs all have to be constrained to, to a given level, right? And I think that is something that actually society kind of accomplishes, that people are kind of, okay, you can, you can argue within this given uh, set of beliefs, but not outside of that. Out of intellectual integrity, I think it's important for us to mention that we're standing directly in the middle of a preprint that you wrote with Mirta Galesic mm -hmm. and Henrik and Tamara and uh, Dan Stein, integrating social and cognitive aspects of belief dynamics towards a unifying framework. As someone who loves the, the powers of 10 multi-scale Zoom that you know allows <laughs> us to consider things like civilization as a super organism and so on, I think it would just be worth acknowledging this particular piece just to give you the opportunity to go into a little bit more detail about that piece that we haven't already addressed. Basically, also what this piece is about is it's also it's very related also to, to what my main project here at, at SFI is actually, and that is combining these individual or, or more personal beliefs that you have and the dynamics of, of this, which my work has until now mostly focused on with more social belief dynamics, basically with the idea, okay, there's 
People at the same time want to reduce inconsistency and dissonance in their own belief system, but they also want to uh, reduce dissonance at the social level. And of course, people can differ then in uh, how important they judge these different levels. So for some, some people, it might be more important, okay, that their own belief system is very consistent. Other people will be a bit more inclined to agree with the social network and so on. And what, what I think is also very interesting about this is that there's quite a lot of indications that actually what happens in a single human's mind is actually quite similar to what happens in a group of humans. So for example, there's a lot of classic studies on group polarization. So basically, if a group has kind of an inclined leaning toward a given issue, let's say it's about abortion, and most of the individuals in the group are pro-choice, and then they uh, discuss about this. And then after discussing this, people will actually move to being even more pro-choice. And at the same time, there's also studies on single individuals. When you ask people to think about the attitudes, the kind, kind of the same happens. So if I ask someone who is, let's say, moderately pro-choice, and I ask this person, hey, think a bit about your attitude, then after a few minutes, this person will actually move a bit more towards the extreme. For me, this is really, really very interesting. There's kind of similar dynamics going on at these different levels. That is always, I think, fascinating. It also lends it then to, to integrating these different dynamics into the same model. The paper you just mentioned is actually one of our first steps in doing this, and we're actually working much more on this. This all reminds me of Jessica Flack's paper on coarse graining as downward causation and how, you know, if you think about what a society is doing by aggregating and evaluating input from all of these local measurements and you know local attitudes about reality at the level of a social creature that's intimately related to what each of us are doing in terms of modeling everyone else's opinions and so you end up with the social contract or you know to use a, a sort of less endorsed term the holy ghost of a society <laughs> is something that emerges at the intersections of people and uh, again, to link that to when we had Mirta on the show in episode nine, and she was talking about how you see this in voting, you were just talking about how people care about what their friends and family think. And that can outweigh your own personal convictions about who you should be voting for. But something that I, you know, I wonder again, in terms of how modern society differs from the kind of societies sub Dunbar number societies that we evolved in, you know, smaller tribes, clans, villages, etc. I think you kind of spoke to this when we were talking about island biogeography, that affluence that arises in subpopulations as a consequence of economies of scale. There's something about, you know, the way that privilege creates the opportunity for us to care less about each other's opinions and therefore erodes the social contract. And I think us back to the point about what it takes for people to regard a particular subject as urgent and imminent. Whereas you talk to people that are like, oh, I'm not worried about the collapse of society because I've got enough money that I'll just be able to wall myself off from that. You can see the shifting in the weights between what I believe and what I believe about what other people believe and how much importance I place on other people's beliefs. And so there's this weird, what to me was a counterintuitive consequence of all of that, which is that the more affluent we become as a society, generally, the less we actually function as a society. Does this accord 
with everything that you've uh, come to? I definitely agree that there's definitely dangers there. I mean, Mirta actually mentioned this in, in her podcast. It's much easier to find people that agree with you than it used to be, right? I mean, if you live in a small village with just a given number of people, of course, your, your options are, are limited. And, and now basically you can just go online and find people who agree with you. There's also this... Uh, reports on people uh, in this QAnon movement of or whatever you want to call it, that really they cut all the links to their family members, to their old friends, and just talk to, to other QAnon members. That's, that's of course, a, a point where it gets very dangerous. And then it also brings me back to what I said earlier, that polarization isn't always a problem, but if it reaches a point where you don't talk to each other anymore and just talk to people who you agree with, then of course, at some point, society cannot function anymore. And also the problem arises if you don't agree on facts, then of course, you also can't really have functional discussions anymore. You end your piece on attitudinal entropy by facing forward into the questions that remain unanswered. And then also how this model relates to other models of attitude. So I'm giving you a sort of choose your own adventure here about which <laughs> of those to tackle first. But I think for the sake of feeling complete at the end of this discussion, I'd love to know how you compare this model to other models and then where you are pointed beyond what we've already discussed in this call into the questions that this work has opened for you. Let's start with the model comparison, which in psychology often is a bit different from more formal fields because there's much less formal theories in, in psychology. So it's often a bit difficult to directly compare different models. So I would say the most important thing to go forward is, okay, let's see how these different predictions that we have pan out. And one thing I am excited about and want to understand also better is actually extreme shifts in attitude. Our model actually predicts that generally, if an important is very important to you, you will be very res resistant to change. But at the same time, if you get enough information that you cannot hold on to your original attitude, you will flip to another extreme. And there's really quite a lot of anecdotal evidence on, on this. So for example, there's this um, German lawyer who used to work for the RAF, which is a, a, used to be a left-wing terrorist organization in Germany, mostly during the 60s and 70s. But then he switched at some point to become one of the most outspoken neo-Nazis in Germany. So he's completely switched from the most extreme left to the most extreme right. Also, there's this evidence about uh, people actually losing their faith. So, uh, for example, I think there was this pastor who then at some point for him, it didn't make sense anymore. And then he started this group with which he helps people actually discarding their religion and also a group for becoming atheists. So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence about this, that people actually cannot sometimes change their attitudes quite, quite radically, but there's not that much systematic studies about this. And I think this is really something uh, our, our model has a lot to say about. And I think it would be really great to test this in a systematic way. Yeah, you know, to bring up the whole thing about the converted atheist, that is just such an interesting topic because it's so clear to so many people that a lot of these, oh, I used to feel that way and then I had a revelation kind of personal narratives are really just a shift across the y-axis into an equally extreme but opposite position that resolves a person's cognitive dissonance 
that they've been developing about the creator or whatever. But it doesn't actually indicate an evolutionary transition for that person in terms of like their psychological development. They haven't actually gained any kind of distance from the level of organization at which they were constructing their identity in the way that we were talking about earlier with James Fowler. You give another really interesting anecdotal example of this in the op-ed that you sent me on the Proud Boys. And I'd love to offer something concrete to people, I think, talking about Trump supporters before and after January 6th and the attack on the Capitol is a really clear case that illustrates the insights of your model here. Yeah, sure. I was really struck by this article in, in the New York Times about how the Proud Boys actually shifted their attitudes toward Trump in a quite extreme fashion after the uh, storming of the Capitol because they felt betrayed by Trump because they didn't receive any pardons and so on. And then uh, really a few days after the storming of the Capitol, they started to mock Trump on their social media and and really called him weak, a traitor, a, a total failure and so on. And then, I mean, this, this is a group that used to see Trump as their messiah almost. For them, Trump was really a very important, very unifying figure. But then the shift then that they that they saw them as betraying them, that really shifted their attitudes completely from seeing him as, as strong and loyal and, and so on as a great president. They really they, they saw him as weak and disloyal and really as a as a complete failure, as they as they said. And I think this really illustrates the working of our model quite well, because it's not that they just shifted their attitude a little bit. I mean, they could have also said, okay, yeah, he might have been disloyal to us, but maybe, well, he, he didn't also have that much opportunities there and, and so on, but they really had to shift completely. And of course, it's also amplified actually by the group dynamic. Then if, if some person in, in, in their social media started to, to call him failure, of course, it's also put pressure on, on the other members to agree with this or shift their attitudes. But of course, as you also said, they just shifted from one extreme to, to the other. It's not that they actually become any more nuisance than before. It's just from one highly idealized attitude, they shifted just to one other very idealized and very simplistic attitude. So maybe the, the place to wrap this then would be to you know just invite a little bit of discussion about a question that you pose at the end of this paper about the possibility of finding neural substrates for this. You compare what's going on here in networks of beliefs with the Hebbian learning, the fire together, wire together learning of neurons in the brain. And you know when you look at this kind of phenomenon at the social level, again, if you think of it as uh, human behavior in society as a, as a form of collective computation, then it is sort of like these people that are firing together behaviorally are forming these neural motifs at the level of society and thereby determining the identity of a nation or, or whatever. Do you think that it's going to be just a clear one-to-one? Are we going to find the fingerprint of belief in the brain in this way? Or do you think it's going to be a bit more of an abstract relationship between a person's connectome and their beliefs and behavior? Do you think we're really going to be able to like brain scan somebody in 20 years and tell them what they believe? No, I don't think so. There's also quite a movement in brain science and neuro, neuropsychology acknowledging that trying to locate certain functions in the brain is not really the optimal way to go, but it's really much more about the complex interactions between different brain areas that can actually tell us much more about the, the functioning of the human mind. And I think I 
completely agree with this view. And I think it also lends this to our work that is really at the psychological level, where we also want to stress, okay, the, the, the complex interactions between different psychological factors, this matches this view that we have to study the brain in its complex form much better. Awesome. Any uh, <laughs> parting thoughts before we put a pin on this? I think it's very important to think a bit more about how we can actually get back to more nuanced opinions, tolerating also ambiguity. Awesome. Jonas, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> sure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.